our usual sense of security is actually founded on a misperception, a misunderstanding. Not acknowledging the truth of things as they actually are. When we assume or have a sense that we have security or safety in things that are unreliable. And so as we begin to acknowledge or take in that where we usually place our sense of security, our sense of refuge, is not terribly reliable, we begin to ask the question, where might be a more reliable place to find refuge? The instability of the world, the impermanent nature of all experience, is truth. We cannot actually um, be protected from this abject, objective truth. Protected in the sense of, we can't be protected in the sense of finding something impermanent that will be permanent for us. Our minds tend to be in reactivity to this truth. When we meet it, we like to either deny it, pretend it doesn't exist, or ignore it, or fight against it. We resist it. We resist what actually is true. Instead of fighting this truth, instead of fighting the truth of unreliability, impermanent nature of experience, if we began to align ourselves with that truth, if we began to actually open to the truth, to that truth, and not fight it, not resist it, not react to it, that posture of mind, a non-reactivity to the truth, that might be a more reliable refuge. A mind of balance that can be unswayed or unruffled with the changing circumstances of life. And so this exploration of finding this, what we could call a truer safety, a mind that is balanced and stable in the face of truth, balanced and stable in the midst of impermanent, unreliable experience. This mind of equanimity would be a real safety. And yet we need some support to find such a refuge. Most of us won't find or stumble upon that kind of quality of mind that is balanced by ourselves. And this is where the traditional refuges in Buddhism come in. The refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. They're not really separate refuges. They are really three threads or three strands that weave together one refuge, three related aspects of one refuge. 
the refuge in the Buddha, the Buddha being the one who discovered this possibility of non-reactivity in the face of the truth, open-hearted acknowledgement and meeting of this truth without resisting, reacting, becoming fearful, anxious. And the Buddha discovered this truth, this possibility of freedom, this possibility of non-reactivity. And so we take refuge in the Buddha for being the one who discovered this truth, but also in terms of what he represents as a human being. He was a human being like us. And he found the capacity in himself to understand how to have this place of safety. And so taking refuge in the Buddha also we take refuge in ourselves in our own capacity to wake up in our own capacity to open our hearts to these very challenging truths and find out where we're clinging find out where we're stuck find out how we are reacting and open more and more to that reactivity which begins to allow it to transform this is so much of the work that we do And then the Dharma, the refuge in the Dharma, the Dharma being the, the teachings of the Buddha, the practices, what we do, how we engage. And also another term for Dharma, another uh, meaning of Dharma is really these very core truths that things are unreliable, unreliable unsatisfactory, coreless, ephemeral, ever-changing. And so taking refuge in the Dharma, this is the true refuge, really, taking refuge in the truth. When we can not resist things as they actually are, when we can open to the truth of experience, this is the true refuge. And the practices, the teachings the Buddha offered, what we'll be exploring here on this retreat, are tools that support us to find this refuge. And then the refuge in the Sangha, our basic uh, community, the community of practitioners since the time of the Buddha who have carried this lineage, who have carried these teachings, who have supported each other in these practices. We all need support to engage in this work. The Buddha apparently didn't need support, but we do. <laughs> and so the Sangha represents that support. And taking refuge in the Sangha, to me, means partly taking refuge in the, uh, the whole chain. Gil Pronstall sometimes says the, the, the teachings of the Buddha for the last 2,600 years have passed from warm hand to warm hand. This is the support. We are direct recipients of that lineage, of that chain of practitioners from the time of the Buddha. We are supported directly by the Sangha. And we are supported by each other 
on this retreat. Someone mentioned that in the check-in, how, how much uh, easier it is to practice here in community. And so you'll feel that support as well. And so this threefold refuge supports us when we're, str- when we're struggling sometimes, it can be helpful to remind ourselves of these refuges. I found that to be so helpful at times. When I, I remember on one retreat, I just felt like I could hardly be mindful and you know, just, just felt like my practice was a mess. And yet I noticed in a moment, oh, I'm aware. It's like, wow, this mind has this capacity to be aware. I didn't have to do that. Oh, that to me felt like immediate taking refuge in the Buddha. Just this capacity of mind that's here already. Or we can take refuge in the simplicity of the practice. Just knowing, being aware of what's obvious in this moment. Noticing our relationship to experience. Those simple tools When we're struggling, we can just come back to simple tools. It's like, right, can I be aware? Am I aware right now? Can I know what my relationship is right now? Taking refuge in these tools of practice. And as we put these tools into practice, we, from time to time, begin to taste the true refuge of this heart and mind that is stable, non-reactive, open-hearted, able to meet whatever is here. And so these are the refuges. These are our security, our safety. And related to safety in community are the precepts, taking these five precepts together. We will also offer the eight precepts in a couple of days for those of you who would like to take the eight precepts. The five precepts are are five basic precepts around a commitment to non-harming, a commitment in community that we agree to engage in activities that are non-harming. And so the precepts are stated in the, uh, in the negative as things to avoid. I kind of mentioned that in the, ch- in the, in the check-in, you know, that this uh, practice of avoiding things has a long history in Buddhism. And yet, the framing of avoiding or refraining from certain actions, refraining from taking life, refraining from taking what's not given, refraining from false speech, refraining from sexual misconduct on this retreat, refraining from any form of sexual activity, refraining from intoxicants. Each precept offers safety to the community outwardly safety to the community and all beings in the vicinity. It's a beautiful gift to offer this safety. And yet it also 
rebounds on our own hearts and minds. These precepts are, we commit, we commit to engaging with them. And yet, you know, they're not so much to me, at least, they don't feel so much about um, right, wrong. It's more that the Buddha actually offered these saying, if you engage in these harmful activities, you'll create suffering in the world and that suffering will rebound on yourself. So this is not helpful. If you want to free your heart and mind from suffering, avoid these actions. So it's really practical. It's more practical than it is moralistic in my view. And so as we engage in these practices, we will perhaps at times forget, perhaps especially around insects, just reaching to slap a mosquito out for a walk. And yet at some point you will notice, you'll recognize, oh, I took that action. And then begin to explore what was going on. We can use these precepts as kind of mindfulness wake-up bells, either when we're about ready to engage in one of these uh, actions that might cause harm, or afterwards, we can look in, into our hearts and minds and recognize what was going on there. Hmm, maybe some aversion, maybe some greed, and recognize how those states of mind are not really conducive to our own inner well-being. And so the practices of the precepts are really about finding ways, finding actions, having these actions support this cultivation of an inner well-being. And that inner well-being is supported not only by refraining from those actions, but also because each of these precepts, as we refrain from those actions, it has the possibility, if we are open to it, if we are available for it, to support the cultivation of some beautiful qualities of mind. Refraining from killing. Refraining from killing all living beings, insects, mosquitoes. Cultivates compassion. Rebounds on our hearts with this quality of compassion. Refraining from taking what's not given, respecting the property of others, leaving things where they are, cultivates the quality of contentment. Refraining from sexual misconduct, here, refraining from sexual activity, really this is an encouragement in some ways to allow all of our energy to come into the practice. And we also see if we cannot allow this very powerful, potent energy, our sexual energy, to kind of ripple out from us. It's so easy sometimes having um, a little bit of an attraction to somebody to perhaps see if you can catch their eye or, you know, put your shoes next to theirs or something, you know. Just seeing if you can refrain from 
activities that might be leaking out of this just very subtle sexual energy. This is also a form of of safety in the community that we can all feel that we are able to do our own inner work without needing to engage or take care of other people. This practice, refraining from sexual misconduct, cultivates integrity, integrity of heart, integrity of mind. Refraining from false speech, here, refraining from speech, except for functional speech that you might need in your, your jobs, your sangha service. This is noble silence. This refraining from false speech, and you will be in the, in the practice discussions, in a few days we'll begin practice discussions. You will be speaking with myself and in a group. And, you know, at times it can move into, I've seen definitely in my interviews sometimes where the, 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 the reporting shades into just a little bit of exaggeration perhaps. I have suffered so much from that. <laughs> and so this practicing this precept cultivates truthfulness, cultivates this beautiful quality of truth. I'd like to encourage in this exploration of no- noble silence that, um, again, the, the refraining from using your devices falls under this category. That if you're using devices to communicate or to take in information about the world, it's allowing an agitation to come into the mind. Noble silence really supports a stilling and settling of the mind in the quietude to allow us to really begin to see what's going on in here. And if we are continually engaging, you know, oh, checking our email or checking our messages or checking our texts, it's kind of like taking a kettle off the stove. You know, if you want the kettle to boil, but you're take, you keep taking it off the stove because you, you, you're allowing your mind to get agitated. So the noble silence really supports the, uh, the mind's ability to settle into the continuity of mindfulness. The continuity of mindfulness on this retreat will be our ally, our stabilizing force. And so I'd like to encourage also um, to keep... Um, um, journaling, perhaps, to a minimum. I will be putting out some books written by Saira Utejaniya, and you're each welcome to have one of these books. In terms of using those, I'd suggest, you know, maybe just read little short bits. And I'll talk in a couple of days about how to practice with reading as a form of noble silence. But looking for yourself as to whether, when you engage with that reading, is it agitating the mind or is it supporting a stilling of the mind? You can tell, you can know, and use the guidance of your own experience. What supports the settling, the stilling of the mind?
It's fine, of course, to take notes if you like during the practice discussions, during the talks, during the instructions. And then refraining from intoxicants. Refraining from recreational drugs and alcohol. This really cultivates clarity of mind. Honoring that here what we are looking at is how to be present. How to be deeply, fully present. And recognizing that while Sometimes those recreational drugs or alcohol might relax you a little bit. It does tend to cloud the mind. And so the clarity is a really important piece here. So let's take the refuges and precepts together. We'll do the, um, the refuges in Pali, and we'll do that in call and response. Um, the first part of the refuge is an homage to the Buddha. And I'll do that a few words at a time. And then of the refuges themselves, I'll do those a line at a time. So the, the refuge uh, will we'll take refuge to the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. And then for the second time, we'll take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And for the third time, we'll take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And then following that, we'll do the precepts, the five precepts in English. Namo tasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo tassa, Bhagavato, Arahato, Sama Sambuddhasa, Namo tassa, Bhagavato, Arahato, Sama Sambuddhasa, Buddhang Saranangachami Dhammang Saranangachami Sanghang Saranangachami Dutiampi Buddhang Saranangachami Dutiampi Dhammang Saranangachami Dutiampi Sangang Saranangachami Tatiampi Buddhang Saranangachami Tatiampi Dhammang Saranangachami Tatiampi Dhammang 
Tatiampi Sangang Saranangachami Tatiampi For the sake of our practice together, I undertake the training to refrain from killing living beings. For the sake of our practice together, I undertake the training to refrain from taking that which is not given. For the sake of our practice together, I undertake the training to refrain from sexual misconduct. For the sake of our practice together, I undertake the training to refrain from false speech. For the sake of our practice together, I undertake the training to refrain from intoxicants. which cloud the mind and lead to heedlessness. Thank you for taking the refuges and precepts and creating this community together. So I just wanted to say a few words. I want to keep this relatively short. I'd like to be out of here by 8.30 so that we can all get a good night's rest tonight. Um, But I wanted to offer a few words about the practice that we'll be doing here, that we'll be engaging in here, and then do a a short guided meditation around the practice. The title of the retreat is Mindfulness of Mind. And so what is that? It's actually a... um, in the Buddha's meditation instruction, one of the foundations for mindfulness. And in that foundation, he really points to knowing what our minds are doing. What's our relationship to what's happening in our experience? And so really, the mindfulness of mind aspect of the practice is attending to how we are with our experience, how the mind is in relationship to experience and how the mind is actually doing what it's doing, how the mind is functioning. This is useful because the way that we struggle, the ways that we suffer, the ways that we get caught are usually found in our relationship. I might even go so far to say they are found in our relationship to experience. When our minds are balanced, when our minds are non-reactive, there's much less of the suffering going on. But as soon as we have a reactive relationship to what's happening in our experience, we suffer immediately. We may not recognize it. We may think the problem is out there in the world. We may think somebody else is doing something to us or something is wrong out there and not really notice our own inner reactivity. And yet it is the inner reactivity where we have some say in the matter. And so this is our practice, this is a lot of our practice to look at how we are relating to our experience. 
every single experience that we have consists both of some sense experience, the six senses of the body and mind, seeing, smelling, hearing, tasting, touching, and stuff happening in our minds. Every experience has some sense experience, a sight, a sound, an emotion, a thought. And it also includes this, um, uh, the, 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 the possibility of knowing it. And it is in this knowing, it's in the, the, the mind that knows what's happening, that often these attitudes slip in, these relationships slip in. And so there's what we're paying attention to, the objects, I'll use that word a lot probably, the objects of our experience, experience itself. And then there's the mind that knows it. And we can check in also to how we are paying attention. So there's the smell of delicious food. And then there's the mind that is anxious to get down to be first in line. A greedy mind. Or there's a little bit of pain in, a knee, in the knee. And there's the mind that doesn't like it, wants to get rid of it, wants to fix it or change it. So we are going to be exploring both sides of experience in this practice. Getting familiar with what we are experiencing. Noticing moment after moment this stream of ever-changing experiences, objects of body and mind. And also looking at how we are paying attention. Looking at the, the mind that knows these, the mind that is in relationship to these experiences. It's very helpful to really be very clear about what we are experiencing because it is often through knowing the what that we become aware more clearly of how we are relating to it. And so we'll talk a lot about this as the weeks go on. There's one aspect of Saida Utejaniya's practice that I found so helpful. And that is that he really emphasized relaxation. As we explore what our minds are doing, what we start to see is that as the mind, as the mind is more relaxed, it's, more, it's possible to actually just watch and see what's going on, what's happening. And so as we relax the body, we can start by consciously exploring a relaxation of body. As we relax the body, it supports the mind relaxing somewhat. And as we find our way to a relaxed mind, we begin to see that when the mind is relaxed, it actually is very naturally present. That as we actually relax the body and relax the mind, a very natural kind of awareness can be there. And so we'll explore and use the relaxation a lot as a way to touch into this very natural kind of awareness. It's actually helpful to explore and get really familiar with this very relaxed 
attentiveness for any form of meditation practice. This, uh, for me, has been one of the big gifts of Sayadaw Utejaniya's teaching that uh, I really learned and understood what it means to pay attention with the mind being relaxed. So much of our, I think a lot of the Western culture, we have this tendency to want to, you know, really get it right or, um, uh, you know, jump in and be really good yogis, do it right, you know, work really hard. And yet so often that way of engaging brings some level of agitation, of tightness, of tension, of either greed or aversion. And so this cultivating a relaxed attention begins to allow some of that uh, tendency to fall away. And we, we actually begin to find that relaxation and alertness are not opposites. And that we can make effort in a very relaxed way that doesn't create that tension or tightness. And if that is the only thing you learn in these two weeks, it will serve you in however you practice. And so we begin very much by exploring a relaxation of body and mind. And then, with this practice, the basic instructions are very simple. And I'll, I'll, I'll reiterate them tomorrow, but it's really, really simple. There's not a lot of technique in this practice. It's just simply notice that you're aware and what you're aware of. And then from time to time, check in to what your relationship is, the how of your meditation. And so we, we, relaxing the body and mind, we start to check into what's obvious in our experience. Most of you or many of you may have a, a familiar practice of choosing or directing the attention to a particular meditation object. And it's fine to begin there for yourself if you um, find that to be helpful. And yet that is just the place to begin. Our practice ultimately opens up to a receptive awareness, receiving simply what is the most obvious thing happening in our experience. We're aware and what's obvious, what's obvious might be the breath, might be some sound or other body sensation, might be an emotion or a mood or even a thought. Just moment to moment, knowing. This is the, um, the moment to moment knowing, the continuity of the practice. This is where the um, power of the mindfulness is revealed, is through this continuity. Many of you may be familiar with exploring continuity of mindfulness by staying with one experience. And it's a very powerful way to gain continuity. And yet this, this alter, an, an alternative way is simply to explore continuity of just, and, then, and now what's happening? And now what's happening? And now what's happening? And now what's happening? The continuity begins to build in that way. And we also see a lot of how our minds respond 
and react to various experiences. And so this, this practice, I, I, I like to sometimes think of this practice as your mind 101. You will get to know your mind. You get to see what your mind does in spades because we're just noticing, ah, oh, what's happening now? What's happening now? What's happening now? And there are times, of course, that we may need to use some of our tools to settle our mind down. There are definitely times in this practice where something comes along in our experience that is stronger than our capacity to be present for it. Some mood or some, some um, um, idea from our past, a, an argument from a, a, a situation we were in two weeks ago might arise in our mind and Oh, the, the, the emotion is so strong that it's very, very challenging to just simply say, oh yeah, aware of anger, aware of anger. Oh yes, angers are rising. So sometimes we can't do that. And then we need to know how to use some of our tools. And we'll talk about this. But the basic continuity that we cultivate here is on the flow of our experience. with a light touch of effort. And then we check our relationship to experience. So often there might be something hidden in our, the back of our minds. We're paying attention to something, thinking we're just simply being aware. But in the back of our minds is this little grinchiness that's going, well, I really don't like this, this is really boring. That's an attitude. And so from time to time we check in to our relationship. We check in. What's going on? What's my relationship to what's happening? Am I angry? Frustrated? Do I want something to be happening? Do I want something to stop happening? Am I confused? Am I bored? How is the mind relating to the very simple experience? This is where a lot of the learning happens as we explore our our relationship to experience. So from time to time, we check in on our attitude of experience. And so this is the basics. This is just the basic little description of the practice that we'll be doing. It's really simple. And yet, as you will discover, not so easy. Simple to describe, and yet, the habits of our mind will be what we are working with. The many habits of our mind, the many relationships that we have to so much that happens. And so we get to watch it. We check in, oh, yeah, there's this boredom going on and this grinchiness, this this like, well, it's kind of okay, but I'd really rather it weren't happening. That attitude of mind in the background when we notice that, when it becomes unmasked, when it gets seen, when it gets uh, observed, it, it, it becomes possible then to just recognize, oh, this thing is happening and I don't like it. Or this thing is happening and there's boredom. And so the, the attitude of mind then is just kind of held in the field. We don't have to like zero in and say, oh, there's boredom. What's boredom like? And like put it under the microscope and look at it. But rather just like, oh, oh, there's this thing and I don't like it and there's boredom. And what else is happening right now? 
just very simply continuing. And yet that attitude, having been unmasked, doesn't have as strong a capacity to kind of drive the show or be running our minds. And so we'll, we'll be working with these tools this week, these two weeks. So let's just do a little short sitting practice together. And finding yourself in a posture that feels both comfortable and alert. And we'll start with a little bit of relaxation. It'll be brief because if I did too much relaxation, you'd probably all fall asleep. (laughs) But we'll just touch into a little bit of relaxation here. Starting with a, a little bit of relaxing of the body. Allowing in particular the face to relax the muscles around the eyes and mouth, the jaw, relaxing the head and neck, the shoulders, allowing tension in the arms to release Relaxing the hands. And as you relax the body, you might just kind of once in a while check in and see if this is having any kind of an impact on your mood or how your mind is. And so relaxing the chest and upper back, all the muscles around the rib cage, softening the muscles of the stomach and abdomen, middle and lower back. Relaxing the hips, the legs, the feet. And then sometimes we can also consciously relax a little bit inside the body. So just check in and see, not always, but just see if it might be possible to relax a little bit inside the throat. Relax the heart, the stomach, and the intestines. And then see too if there can be a little bit of a softening, a relaxing of the mind, of tension in the mind letting go of thoughts about the past or the future. Relax the mind. 
Relax the brain. And then within this field of whatever relaxation you have access to in this moment, what's the most obvious experience you're aware of? Might be some body sensation, contact of your hips against a chair or cushion or bench. Contact with the legs or feet with the ground. It might be some other contact point, hands, or some other experience in the body. It might be a mood, an emotion. If an obvious sensation is relatively accessible to you, just receive that experience. There's actually not a need to direct the attention. Just let whatever's obvious come to you. And this may change may last. One particular obvious experience may be obvious for a little while and then something else might become obvious. Perhaps a sound. There's no need to hold the attention anywhere. We're cultivating the capacity to be aware And yet, if it is a struggle for you, particularly if you're new to this practice, if you find your mind kind of thrashing around, looking for something, just let your attention settle on some experience such as the breath, some familiar experience for you. And then recognizing that as you sit and connect with any particular experience at any time, some other experience may draw your attention. And you can just let it, let the attention, let the awareness take that in. There's no need to have a priority to say one experience is better than another. And again, if it feels at any point 
like the mind starts thrashing, just coming back to a familiar object. With a relaxed, receptive attention. Are you aware? What's obvious? You might just check in. What's your relationship to whatever is happening? Might or might not be obvious, but give yourself a chance to see. Do you want something to happen or stop happening? If you notice something, you can just simply allow that to also be included as something that one is aware of. Relax. Receive what's obvious. Of course, the mind will wander. At some point, you will notice this. At that point, awareness has returned. Notice what you have become aware of in that moment. Might be a thought, might be an emotion, could be a body sensation or a sound. But often when we wake up after the mind has been wandering, we're in the terrain of thoughts and emotions. So notice that. Notice what you've woken up into. Sometimes when we wake up, after a period of wandering, our mind has wandered into something that has added tension back into our system. And so it can be helpful to also take some time to reconnect with the process of relaxation, letting go of that tension. And then just gently reconnecting Am I aware? What am I aware of? What's obvious?
So it's 8.30 and I invite you to get some rest, perhaps finish settling in and take some rest. We'll have the sitting at 6 a.m. in the morning and then the instruction period at 8.30 tomorrow morning. We'll give more detailed instructions about the practice. And, of course, if you have energy to continue practicing now and would like to do that, the hall is always open. Good night.